Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, dear listener. You're about to listen to the latest episode of the... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Versailles Anniversary Project. One of two things has just happened. Either you're listening to this for the first time and you just so happened to press play when maybe a few other times you thought about it, but not quite gone that far. Or you're more than ready to get into this and wait for me to stop rambling. Of course, you know by now that I do tend to ramble a teeny tiny bit at the beginning of these episodes, just to help remind you that this is a listener-supported podcast, and we've gotten this far because of listeners doing things as simple as telling people about this podcast, which has really helped it succeed. 2019 is going to be a huge year for this podcast, and it's going to be a great year for when Diplomacy Fails, and when Diplomacy Fails' owner, producer, and podcast chancellor, as I like to call myself sometimes, Zach Twomley. It's going to be a great year for me and for everyone who's listening, and the best way guarantee this, but also piggyback alongside it, is to go and play the delegation game. For $6 a month, 
you can send an avatar to Paris. You can play what's called the delegation game. And if you'd like to know more about that, if you'd like to know about exactly what you're going to get from that, how long it's going to take, all the details that go on besides, click on the link in the description of this episode below or simply listen to the episode that comes out tomorrow. So the 11th of January on a Friday. It's only a week to go until the delegation game launches. I could not be more excited for the delegation game to begin. I can't believe this idea I had has taken off so much, but hey, there you go. 27 people have signed up. We've got people as varied as the Greek premier, Venizelos, whose name I'll definitely learn to have to pronounce properly. And we've, of course, got someone playing as Vittorio Orlando. We've got someone playing as Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I know. Isn't that pretty cool? Can't wait to see how they get on with the uh, with the whole dynamic between himself and Woodrow Wilson, because if you weren't aware... Theodore Roosevelt absolutely despised Wilson, and the feeling was pretty much mutual, which is why he was nowhere near Paris by 1919. But in this interactive version of the Paris Peace Conference, where alternative history and the decisions you guys make are the orders of the day, Theodore Roosevelt was in Paris, and so were several other people, some of which you have heard of, some of whom you certainly have not heard of. But all of them are going to make an impact, depending on who you choose, the character you select, the different statistics you send my way all you have to do is simply fill out the form and you can find that form by going to when diplomacy fails website that is wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game it couldn't be simpler guys and hey maybe download that form see if it seems like something you'd like to do fill out the details and then go and check out the actual details of how the delegation game is going to work so that you know what you're getting yourself into then you can be sure that those six dollars a month for the next six months or so will be worth it. We're going to have a great time with this and I really can't wait to see how much of a mess we make because we're going to make a pretty big mess and you guys are going to be all to blame for it. I'm just, I'm just, I suppose you could call me the delegation game master or something like that. I don't know. I'll find a better name for myself, but for all intents and purposes, I am just an innocent bystander following the will of the people. In this case, you, as we remake the Paris Peace Conference, for better or for worse, for the next six months. It all kicks off on the 18th of January, Friday the 18th of January. And of course, it must be added that even if you don't participate, make sure to still catch the weekly episodes every single Friday, where we actually detail what has happened in this alternative version of the Paris Peace Conference. The events that happen in these alternative history slash interactive episodes, the events that happen within those will depend on the votes that have been cast in the previous week. So it's all very exciting, all very interactive and Yeah, something I can't wait to sink my teeth into. And you can join too, just like the 27 other history friends who have taken part. I originally thought I'd get about 5 very generous, very nerdy history friends to sign up, but instead we've got 27. If we could get maybe to 30 or 40, that'd be amazing. I don't exactly know how I'm going to fit you all in, but we'll find a way. It can't have been any more difficult than the actual storm of difficulties that the delegates and the big three and everyone else faced 100 years ago. So let's get down to it. And thanks for putting up with these little intros at the beginning. You're the best. And let's make 2019 the year of the history friend. America 
I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste paper the Treaty of Versailles and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to leave and make the right prevail. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 21. Today is the 10th of January 2019, and over this period in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Stability was the byword of Friedrich Ebert's German Republic, but Ebert was by no means pleased with Germany's lot. A socialist of the moderate variety, Ebert's goal was to reform Germany and to apply a salve to its many problems, but he found his options hampered by the very nature of the restrictions which had been placed upon his defeated country. Defeated it may have been, but Ebert was among those that did their best, even at this early stage, to hide that fact, an act which would have tragic consequences within a generation. Perhaps he was distracted by the circumstances of the time, to the extent that he failed to preempt the establishment of a more radical movement within his party, as the independent democratic socialists and some other leftist malcontents splintered off to form the German Communist Party in late December 1918. With this new organisation brimming with idealism and intent, its invigorated members clearly planned to make 1919 their year, to overturn what they perceived as Ebert's sellout version of socialism, and to add Germany to the ranks of the communist international. Distracted he may understandably have been, but Ebert was not without some options. One in particular seemed, at the time at least, akin to a stroke of genius. The Fry Corps were disenchanted right-wing former soldiers and paramilitaries. Some of them had no military experience at all, but by and large, that was where they came from. What they did have in common was that they were all angry at the country's state, and they were wholly accepting of the idea that Germany had been stabbed in the back at the worst possible moment. She hadn't been defeated, she'd been betrayed, and those members of the Fry Corps who argued for violence insisted the top of the list of those that had betrayed the fatherland were those spineless ideologues who called themselves the Spartacus League, communists or anything else in between. Their reaction to this betrayal was to set in motion a chain of events which led to the downfall of the Weimar Republic in fewer than 15 years. These Freikorps were not fighting for this republic, they were fighting simply against the Bolsheviks, and they would do all in their power to reverse the unfair situation and erase the great shame for which others, and certainly not the German army, were responsible for. In this episode then we get to grips with some important facts for our story, above all, The anger, which was erupting from within Germany even at this early stage. The stabbed-in-the-back myth, later hijacked so effectively by the Nazis, 
acquired common currency during this period of fightback by the extreme right against the extreme left. These bitter, angry people did not need an unfair Treaty of Versailles to focus their fury. They already had their scapegoats and their cause, and in the month of January 1919, these ingredients culminated in an explosion which rocked this baby German Republic to its core. Let's investigate this event then, as I take you all to it. On the surface, the threat appeared small. The Spartacus League, the German Communist Party and those fringe elements of Friedrich Ebert's Social Democratic Party made up an incredibly tiny proportion of the German population. Germans as a whole, in spite of their urgent and intractable woes, had not bought into the Bolshevik message and remained mostly hostile to those Russian ideas. Yet, in spite of the limp overall German response, the eruption of communist demonstrations in Berlin's streets on the 5th of January did give Ebert pause for thought. He could not ignore these extremists because, as events in Russia had demonstrated, it only required a small band of revolutionaries to topple a regime and institute a hideous new world order. If he wasn't careful, Ebert believed that his regime would suffer a similar fate, and he was therefore determined to take the Spartacus uprising seriously, and to use all means at his disposal to put it down. In the space of a fortnight, culminating on the 5th of January 1919, matters had come to a head in Berlin. It had all begun with the Battle of Christmas Eve, where the military commander of Berlin had ordered the crushing of another left-leaning group, the People's Navy Division. The commander, Otto Wells, viewed the division as a threat to his authority and as sponsors of a Bolshevik revolution, and he sought to punish them by reducing their wages. But on the 23rd of December, the People's Navy Division fought back and actually took Otto Wells, the commander of Berlin, prisoner. Friedrich Ebert could not stand idly by and allow these ruffians to hold a member of government hostage, so he ordered the army in to put the People's Navy Division in their place. The running battles which were fought around the Hohenzollern's imperial castle and through the capital's city streets resulted in an embarrassing defeat for Ebert's forces. Unsurprisingly, the communists were emboldened by the victory, but worse for Ebert's fragile coalition, mixed between moderate and extremist leftists, a disintegration began to take foot. The independent Social Democratic Party blamed Ebert for using force without consulting them first, and the three members which their party had in government abruptly left. In addition, the decision was made to dismiss the chief of the Berlin police, who Ebert believed had not worked hard enough to suppress the People's Navy Division in the first place, thereby facilitating the dangerous defeat suffered by government troops. Ebert was correct in this estimation. The Berlin chief of police was the known communist sympathiser Emil Eichhorn, a member of the independent Social Democratic Party, who had actually used his armed police to aid the People's Navy Division against the army. With Eichhorn's justified dismissal, the more radical leftist elements became inflamed. German Communist Party and fringe elements of the Independent Social Democratic Party took to the streets in a mass demonstration on the 5th of January, where the situation quickly escalated. The newspaper offices of the Social Democratic Party were occupied, a revolutionary committee was declared established, and a 47-year-old Saxon native by the name of Karl Liebknecht demanded the overthrow of Ebert's government. 
The call to arms proved premature, but to Liebknecht, the chaos which his peers had caused even in the space of a few days, and the fact that they could count on sympathisers in several positions, suggested that there would never be a better time. Friedrich Ebert was by no means definitively secure in his position. The army had failed him once before, they may well fail him again or worse, join with the communists, as had happened in Russia. What Liebknecht failed to realise was that Ebert was far more attuned to the trends of popular opinion than his stoic persona suggested. Ebert knew, for instance, that while this leftist spring was exactly what a small minority wanted to see, this very demonstration was viewed by the majority not only as a betrayal of German values and culture, but also as the primary reason for the military collapse a few months before. Ebert, in other words, knew that Karl Liebknecht and his colleagues stood as scapegoats for the far right, for the angry, for the humiliated. What would happen when the president gave these angry men free reign to confront these scapegoats, to attack the villains of their story, to punish those whom they held responsible for the national humiliation? Ebert could not have known for sure, but he was about to find out. Behind the red flag, Tired crowds surged in disorderly fashion. Women marched in front. They shoved their way ahead with their broad skirts, the grey skin of their faces hanging in wrinkles over sharp bones. The men, old and young, soldiers and workers, and many petty bourgeois in between them, strode with dull, worn faces. Thus they marched, the champions of the revolution. Was it from this black crowd that the glowing flame of revolution was to spring? That the dream of blood and barricades was to be realised? Impossible to capitulate before them, I sneered at their claims which knew no pride, no confidence in victory. I stood up straight and, through rabble-pack scum, I squinted as I watched these hollow, destitute figures, like rats, I thought, carrying the dust of the gutter upon their backs. This was how Ernst von Salomon, a 16-year-old military cadet in November 1918, remembered the revolution which he so despised. What we must understand about this period of German history is that it was by its nature very fractured and chaotic. Nowhere was this more apparent than in the surreal manner in which Kaiser Wilhelm II left Germany for his Dutch exile, thereby abandoning the throne which his ancestors had held for hundreds of years. This seismic shift in German society hit most Germans like a bomb. To those still fighting for the fatherland, it only contributed to the trauma which the period presented. Determined though he was to not allow his country to fall into the kind of Bolshevik revolution suffered by Russia, Friedrich Ebert was nonetheless presiding over a revolution of sorts, and it was a revolution which a sizable portion of the German populace did not want. The persistent influence of monarchists, old conservative traditionalists, and Wilhelmine diehards spoke to the fact that for many Germans, Ebert's installation of a social democratic republican government was as grave a betrayal of Germany as anything the communists planned to do. For them, the only legitimate government was the old government. This new regime was indelibly associated not only with betrayal, but also defeat and humiliation. It was so easy to blame Ebert for this betrayal, to reason that his social democracy was to blame for the surrender, rather than confronting the unpalatable truth. Ebert did himself no favours in November and December, of course, by adding to this myth, as we've seen, by claiming that the returning German soldiers were heroes who had never been conquered. If that was true, then why had Germany surrendered? 
Men like Ernst von Salomon, who we just heard from, would insist that Germany had surrendered because cowards like Ebert had forced the surrender. Yet, where Ebert showed no signs of wanting to instigate a change from a republic to an ideological satellite of the Bolsheviks, his more extremist peers did. In the name of revenge, Ebert's government could not be attacked, but the frustration of the moment could at least be taken out on those elements who were not protected and who were now threatening the country with even more severe regime changes in the near future. Friedrich Ebert's government was at least favourable to these swine. We cannot understate the sense of anger and pain at the national humiliation which so many Germans felt over the last few months' events. In his 1923 book The Spider's Web, author Joseph Roth depicts the life of protagonist Lieutenant Theodor Loesch, a man whose bitter experience of fighting in the closing moments of the Great War, followed by the perceived betrayals of the new society, compels him to continue the war by other means. Roth's account of the stricken lieutenant's return home, while not a personal memory, was certainly similar to the experiences of so many demobilised soldiers following the conclusion of the war. In this fractious time, Roth explained, not even Theodor Loesch's own family could look him in the eye anymore. They, Loesch's family, couldn't forgive Theodor, he who had twice been mentioned in dispatches for having failed to die a hero's death as a lieutenant. A dead son would have been the pride of the family. A demobilised lieutenant, a victim of the revolution, was a burden to his womenfolk. He could have told his sisters that he was not responsible for his own misfortune, that he cursed the revolution and was gnawed by hatred for the socialists and the Jews, that he bore each day like a yoke across his bowed neck and felt himself trapped in his epoch as in some sunless prison. The theme of being unable to accept that the war had ended, of being unable to accept that the time had come for peace, these were common bedfellows of the post-war period. They form a large part of the premise of Professor Robert Gerwart's book, The Vanquished, Why the First World War Failed to End. Unable to accept that the time had come to lay down his arms, Joseph Roth details that Loesch determined he had no choice but to join up with the burgeoning post-war paramilitary organisations that had begun to emerge in growing numbers. Among their ranks were the disenchanted, the demobilised, the resentful, the conspiratorial, the extreme, but above all, the angry. Anger drove these men on like no other military ration could, and this anger was capable of being focused on a single target, the illegitimate New Republic, which had been founded by cowards, been shorn of its Kaiser, rid of its culture and history, robbed of its victory, the list goes on. We laughed when they told us that the war was over, wrote one member of the Freikorps, because we were the war. These men believed themselves to be the avenging angels of an unfair world. They would prepare the fatherland for the day of reckoning, when the criminals would be dealt with and the humiliation avenged. Until this happened, these men would not accept their new reality. They would not accept that Germany had been brought low. It was impossible for them to see Friedrich Ebert's regime as the successor to the imperial German ministries which had come before. I have made a promise to myself, father. Without armed struggle, I have handed over my torpedo boat to the enemies and watched my flag go down. I have sworn to take revenge against those who are responsible for this.
These were the words of Manfred von Killinger, the infamous Fry Corps leader and naval officer who would in time become Nazi Germany's ambassador to Romania. Thus we come to that moment of historical continuity which can easily send a shiver down one's spine. Had the Fry Corps been stopped early, then the power vacuum they left behind may never have existed, and the Nazi party may never have emerged in the first place. As it happened though, Ebert's government was in no position to fight against the fringe left and fringe right at the same time. When faced with the choice, Ebert determined to use the side which was at least not linked to a foreign government. The association of the Fry Corps with the Nazi party was in many respects an easy fit. Both organisations were right-wing in nature, obsessed with past humiliations, and determined to right the wrongs inflicted upon the fatherland by holding those criminals responsible. The early membership of the Fry Corps reads like a who's who of the senior Nazi leadership. Many of these men remained ideologically unchanged their entire lives, profoundly shaped and influenced by the experiences they had during this early period of radicalization and brutalization. Heinrich Himmler, Martin Bormann, Reinhard Heydrich, Hans Frank, William Keitel, Wilhelm Canaris, Rudolf Hoss, these are all infamous figures in the Nazi party for various crimes or because of their senior positions that they held, be it as concentration camp commanders, personal advisors to Hitler, or leaders of the SS. The association was not straightforward, as Matthias Buchholz, writing for the First World War Encyclopedia, underscored the strange contradictory relationship which Adolf Hitler enjoyed with the remnants of the Freikorps. He purged its old senior leaders during the Night of the Long Knives in 1934, while still cleaving to the romantic image of the ardent, nationalistic, anti-communist freedom fighter for propaganda purposes. The Nazis wanted to have their Freikorps cake and eat it too, but there is no denying that a significant number of the Nazis' upper ranks cut their teeth in the Freikorps, and the effect this extremist education had upon them, and upon Germany, cannot be understated. Germany would struggle to contain its right and left wing elements in the interwar years, but the fundamental issue it would struggle with was the inability of so many of its citizens and politicians to swallow and digest the military defeat and move on. The stabbed in the back mythos, peddled so enthusiastically by the Freikorps and their successors, but also never openly criticised by the likes of Friedrich Ebert, gave that mythos an increasingly potent acceptability. It was especially convenient for Ebert that the Freikorps were on hand because he was able to make use of their anger and growing popularity to kill the German Communist Party in its cradle. In doing so, Ebert believed that he had helped to kill two birds with one stone, the Communists had been destroyed, and the Freikorps would never see political representation now that the Social Democratic Party was so empowered. In reality though, Ebert had helped to write the first chapter of a story which was to lead to the ascension of the de facto political wing of the Freikorps, and the outlawing of his Social Democratic Party within 15 years. All of this, one notes, and the Treaty of Versailles had yet even to be imagined. It would of course be overly simplistic to apportion blame onto Friedrich Ebert for what followed in Berlin. Faced with a spectacle unsettlingly close to that of the October Revolution, Ebert made use of the most formidable weapon at his disposal, individuals who hated the Communists even more than he did. 
More accurately, though, it was Gustav Nosk, the Minister for the Army and Navy, who bears the responsibility for calling the Freikorps into Berlin. Someone has to be the bloodhound, Nosk exclaimed, and I do not shrink from the responsibility. This infamous proclamation granted Nosk the nickname Bloodhound, and as a man supposedly in search of blood, he certainly lived up to the moniker. Nosk did, after all, have a formidable private army on standby in the Freikorps, if only the government could assert its authority over it and not be dwarfed by the more radical Freikorps commanders. By the 1st of January 1919, it is estimated that as many as 103 units of varying size considered themselves part of the Freikorps organisation. Exact figures are predictably hard to come by, but what is not in doubt is the transformative impact which this militarization of the German right wing had on the post-war order. Throughout 1919, the Freikorps played an active role in shaping the governments and borders of Eastern Europe and the Baltic states, on the basis that ethnic Germans lived there and thus belonged to the fatherland. Sound familiar? The Freikorps were undoubtedly helped in their quest for notoriety and satisfaction by their first military outing, sanctioned by Ebert's government and commandeered by Gustav Nosk to restore order in Berlin. It would seem that the Freikorps' burning desire to be of use and to acquire some measure of revenge against their political opposites outweighed the hatred which they also held for Ebert's social democracy, at least for now. On the 11th of January 1919, Gustav Nosk moved with 3,000 Freikorps to rid the capital of the communists. So tense and dangerous was the situation that Ebert elected to move the government to Weimar, the town now associated with hapless failure and sinister coups. Karl Liebknecht's aims were twofold, to prevent the further legitimization of the German Republic by delaying the elections to the Reichstag or to any constitutional assembly, and to overthrow that republic and replace it with a communist alternative. The speed with which these aims were trampled into the dust underlines the theory that German communism, as Karl Liebknecht presented it with its Russian flavour and uncompromising code, never stood a chance. Those of you that know something about the story of the German Revolution may well have been asking a question for some time now, though. What about Rosa Luxemburg? Rosa Luxemburg, for those that don't know, was a Polish Marxist who acquired German citizenship by marriage and who spent the war years in open opposition not only to the war, but also to the Social Democratic Party, which she saw as a sellout, proto-capitalist version of the kind of socialist democracy, in air quotes right there, that was to be favoured. Rosa was actually opposed to the Spartacist uprising, though, in spite of her admitted extremism, because she did not believe that the Spartacist movement had the support of enough people to be successful. Indeed, many protesters who had initially joined in the demonstrations on the 5th of January went home disgusted when it transpired that the communists had no genuine plans to effect a regime change, only very vague ones. The movement split further between those that wished to negotiate with the government and those that despised the very idea of negotiation. Rosa Luxemburg was caught somewhere in the middle. She eventually threw her considerable rhetorical support behind Liebknecht's struggle just as it was winding down, a fatal gesture as it turned out, but one which she felt little choice other than to make.
Rosa Luxemburg is sometimes trotted out by communist apologists as an example of an individual who would have given genuine socialist democracy a fair shake. Most historians agree, though, that Rosa's conception of communism, democracy, and dictatorship of the proletariat resemble awkward ideological puzzle pieces that don't quite fit. German communism, unfortunately for the Germans, would abandon its more democratic, moderate qualities in time to head the German Democratic Republic under the Soviet banner after 1945. It was a German state that was neither democratic nor a republic, but a satellite state of Moscow. In 1919, though, there were those that believed the negative authoritarian aspects of communism were merely Russian appendages. German communism, it was said, would contain a free press and free speech for all. Rosa's vocal support of these ideas cannot make up for the fact that she was only one person at the head of one minority fringe movement in a sea of other fringe movements. Any ideas about some form of democratic communism could not be realised, so long as German leftists, living through this age of extremes, disagreed with one another on so many issues. The best that could be hoped for was a broad coalition of socialists, but Friedrich Ebert was already leading this, and in turn, he could never satisfy the extreme radicals, of which Rosa Luxemburg was unmistakably a member. To cut a long story short, on this day 100 years ago, Gustav Nosk's Freikorps were on the verge of marching into Berlin. They would do so the next day as we saw on the 11th of January 1919, and quickly suppress the communists with not too much difficulty. Street fighting and subsequent reprisals would follow, leaving some 200 dead and leading to 400 arrests, but Berlin, by the end of it, would at least be momentarily pacified. In the days that followed, amidst the anxious violence and explosive ideologies which had boiled over, leading communist figures were hunted down and shot. Among those killed were Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, their murders as unceremonial as they were brutal. With this Freikorps triumph, that organisation was commended and its ranks proceeded to swell with other bitter men who were eager for an opportunity to avenge themselves upon the unfairness of the world. There would be time to attack additional communist malcontents, as well as to tackle great national projects further afield in the Baltic and Eastern Europe to protect ethnic Germans and preserve what little of the empire remained. As Germany continued to pull itself apart, the most violent expression of German communism had at least been put down in time for Friedrich Ebert to reinforce his position through a brave new idea, genuine socialist democracy in Germany. Ebert's government proceeded shakily through this eventful year, as news of Germany's struggles filtered out into the wider world and heaped further anxiety on those gathered in Paris. All the while, Ebert kept one eye on his political rivals at home and another fixed firmly on the activities of those at the Paris Peace Conference. The first step was to end the provisional nature of his government and host a proper election to a genuine German assembly with parties other than his own represented. From late January to early February this would be done with the thought process being that soon, very soon, Ebert imagined these Allied powers would be inviting a German delegation to take part in negotiations and the future of Germany. Friedrich Ebert wanted to be ready to move when this moment presented itself. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.